Metamodern Era by Srimataji Nirmala Devi. Read by Sukhanil. Chapter 2 Choices If you ask an enlightened soul, what would you like to have for yourself? He may start thinking, what could I possibly need? He already has everything. On the contrary, he will think, if I really have to go shopping, then I must buy something by which I can express my love for others. An enlightened soul will purchase something only if it is a thing of spiritual value, because there are certain very beautiful things created by human beings which do emit divine cool vibrations and relax enlightened people. Alternatively, he might support some artist or poor person who is trying to make a living by creating something artistic. So underlying his purchase, there is not the principle that I like it, but the principle my spirit enjoys it. But in those choices behind which the chanting of I like it resounds, one finds nothing more than a big collection of junk, random pieces of matter. The cluttered accumulation of this junk makes you very upset and very angry with yourself that you've wasted so much money on something you did not want, and now you have to waste more money getting it taken away and thrown in some rubbish dump. The acquisitive instinct in human beings goes on acquiring things, but when the polarity of choices starts manifesting itself, the very same things for which you've made all the effort and paid all the money starts haunting you. You do not know what to do with them. The things look so different than imagined, and one starts thinking, I didn't want that. I don't know how I could have bought this junk. And you don't even know whom to give it to, as nobody else wants it either, because it has gone out of fashion already. For along with this freedom of choice arises the idea of fashionable things, and the idea of fashionable things allows one to tread and trample upon the freedom of others. For example, you might go to somebody's house, and after having a nice cup of tea or some other drink, very nicely you open your mouth and voice an opinion. Oh, I don't like this carpet. Or, I don't understand what you see in this painting. Or, I don't really like your curtains. Or, I don't like this clock. Or, I can't bear this flower arrangement, I just cannot stand your wallpaper, so on and so forth. It is, of course, quite fashionable to air your opinion in this arrogant way to hurt others, and yet, if we go by traditional values, it is actually quite aggressive and unmannerly behaviour on your part. Apart from treating your host to your opinion, you might even flash some witty remarks on the person who has bought it, confusing him completely. While you are enjoying yourself in this demeaning way, you should ask yourself the question, who are you to say such things to hurt another person? If somebody said the same thing to you, how would you feel? The fact is that in your present Western human state, you cannot appreciate anything unless your ego plays into it. So every action of this kind, which is so arrogant and so hurtful, gives you the very great power of an egoist and you enjoy your ego to no end. The beauty of the ego is that the person who has it never feels it. He only enjoys his own arrogance and his own capacity to hurt others. But this ego goes on growing, 
until it becomes a sufficiently big balloon floating in the air, and then suddenly bursts. One finds then that like Humpty Dumpty, one really has a very great fall. The problem with the ego being mixed up in all this business of acquiring things is that one has to have more and more choices so that Mr. Ego can show what a clever, unique person he is. To make things worse, everyone wants to have individual, unique tastes. If you are travelling in an American car, before you set off you should first find out how to open the door, because choices are many. Every American car can have a different kind of door fastener or handle, which you could never work out without some special sort of training. If you are caught in any kind of accident, then unless the owner is alive and found, you cannot get out of that car whatever you may try. The same thing is true of bathrooms in America. It is better to ask how they work before you go in, because every bathroom has its own peculiarities, and sometimes if you just enter innocently through the door, you may fall into a swimming pool. Or you may find yourself in the middle of an explosion, like a watery fireworks display, if you switch on the shower by mistake while looking for the light switch. The French have another most peculiar style of having their own individuality, because their sewage system often works the other way around and so it is rather a daunting task to find out exactly how to use French bathrooms, even though it is said that they have a lot of expertise in bathroom culture. When the French are working in another country like India, they can make it so peculiar that no one from those developing countries can operate whatever they install. For example, the French have set up the telephone system in India, and the way it works, only the French know how to operate it. Houses, for example, have to be different, but in functioning they should be of some standard design. Bathrooms especially, I feel, ought to have a very simple modus operandi, that is, if you care for your guests at all. Also, you must have consideration for those who are buying your house. I wanted to purchase a particular house in England which had five bedrooms and one large bathroom. The owner said, If you want to have four or five people, they can share very easily. Once I had to visit a Georgian house designed by Robert Adam. I asked, Where are the bathrooms? They said, In those days they used the windows. Those who live in one house all their lives can, of course, cope with a particular peculiar system, but it is no good for guests or for people who have to travel all the time. One can have variety in dress, and only a handmade dress can give that variety. In Western countries... Once the fashions start, everybody will have a beard and a moustache, and they will all wear the same type of clothes. Of course, with class consciousness, some may only wear clothes from Savile Row or Pierre Cardin, and others will wear clothes from some other shops with expensive, trendy labels. I've seen many who put the labels of those expensive designers outside their attire. But the problem is that with so many people looking the same, it is difficult even to identify somebody who has been involved in a crime. They all look completely alike, as they are red in the face or very pale. A whole regiment of different varieties of clothes have gone into it, and yards and yards of cloth together with tons and tons of ingenuity, just to show how human beings can be absolutely identical according to the highest sartorial expertise. To top it all, they now have unisex clothes, 
so that it's becoming very difficult to make out a man from a woman. One may say, so what? What's wrong with that? Well, firstly, it is wrong because it does not allow natural variety, which is pleasing to the eye. Secondly, it does not differentiate people, which is often a practical necessity. And thirdly, it can cause terrible misunderstandings and confusion if a man looks like a woman. The original idea of homosexuality might have risen by some coincidence, where some man must have been confused for a woman by another man, as in the comedy Charlie's Aunt. There's a little joke about this. A gentleman was waiting at the airport. There he saw a young girl looking like a boy. In order to verify this, he asked the person standing next to him, What do you think? Is that a girl or a boy? The person replied, She's my daughter. Our gentleman felt embarrassed and he said, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were her father. The second person replied, Well, actually, I'm her mother. This is the way things are going into confusion nowadays. There is a complete confusion of roles, and people are no longer sure what it means to be a man or to be a woman. God has created two sexes for good reason, and these two sexes, I feel, are like the two wheels of a chariot. Of course, there is a certain space or distance between the two, and although equal and similar, they are not identical. One is on the left side, and the other is on the right side. If you try to fit the left onto the right side and the right side to the left, it won't work out. Apart from that, if you make one of these wheels smaller or less important than the other, this will prevent the chariot from moving forward and will just go around and around in circles. So this differentiation of the sexes, or of gender roles, as people say these days, is part of the great variety that has been created by God. Every leaf is different from any other leaf in the whole world. He has made these minute differences in order to create the beauty of variety, while we, with our freedom of choice and our nonsensical rationality, are trying to make all human beings look alike, walk alike, talk alike, regardless of sex, culture, and age. And in the end, all this regimented behavior makes you absolutely bored with human beings. Now, for example, women in India are taking to Western clothes. Instead of their traditional saris, they're wearing trousers made by fashionable tailors. These saris, each of which is an individual work of art of great beauty, are made in the villages by simple country folk, who are free from agricultural work for five to six months a year. In this way, they can supplement their income from farming and balance their lives with two different kinds of work. If you really look at their weaving, you will find it is beyond your comprehension as to how they do it. Such things could not be made in any Western country. Nothing even approaching it is possible. In the developed countries, they are fed up with artificial products, and these handmade items are appreciated, but unfortunately the so-called modern Indian people, who are copycats, cannot appreciate them because they have no depth to see the underlying principle of this beauty. They are created by simple ordinary farmers who depend on this craft for their living and so put all their best skills and their most careful attention into it. These handcrafted items made by villagers 
are a reflection of their enjoyment of life. If we know how to appreciate their deep feeling of harmony and joy, we will know how rich they are in their simple lives. These simple artists feel that whatever beauty God has created around them has nourished their minds with that beauty and the natural world. The flowers, leaves and colours that they see around them goes into the cloth which will be covering and enhancing the beauty of lovely ladies. They know that the body is created by God and that its beauty is to be clad and set off by the beauty of human creation. It is surprising how poetically these simple people describe their work when they talk about it. But such things also have their practical, functional value. The quality of beautiful handmade clothes is much better, and so they last longer. Also, the texture as well as the appearance of such clothes is very appealing and congenial to the human body. For example, it is much more comfortable in both summer and winter to wear cotton and silk rather than polyester and rayon, which cling to the body and produce a sticky, hot and unhealthy sensation. Handmade clothes, made of natural materials, are easy to maintain and extremely economical. There is no need to buy replacements very often, as they get worn and torn only after a very long period. Actually, if you wear a sari, you don't have to waste your money on a tailor. It's a simple piece of material, which can be arranged very quickly as a very beautiful and graceful dress, which can be used for various other purposes as well. When it gets old, you can use it as a towel. It can be used for covering furniture, or as a wall hanging and a room divider. So the quality of the cloth which is made by human hands and which is both beautiful and practical, is such that we may say it has something divine about it. Unfortunately, however, the people who live in the very countries where these saris are handmade are being fed with ideas from Western entrepreneurs through the media and are beginning to think that mass-produced nylon saris are better because you can have ten of them instead of having only two nice silk or four cotton saris. In this way, even developing countries like India are unfortunately beginning to be infected by the destructive idea that it is preferable to have many things of no value than to have a few things of good value and great beauty. The consequence is that if we are not careful, and we give up handmade things and take to mass-produced labels, those farmer artists who produce these wonderful saris will die out and their creativity will disappear forever. With modernism we have created static forms, made up of straight lines and stark contrasts in the design of our homes and in the creation of our dress fashions, calling them simple, uncluttered or honest. But all such creations are, in actual fact, so drab, so stark and so morbid that after living in such houses people develop psychogenic problems or end up in lunatic asylums. If not, they simply fade away into dullness and mediocrity from wearing these fashionable clothes in which only the label is to be looked at and which nowadays is worn outside the clothes. The variety of materials out of which one can create handicrafts and furnishings cannot be rivaled by any machine. One can use so many different things, like glass, clay, 
sandalwood, ivory, shell, coconut, wood, wool, cotton, brass, silver and gold. So many different materials can be used. Moreover, there's an ecological spin-off. Because the things are handmade, they do not consume so much from Mother Earth. Since individual human labor is involved, there is a natural limitation imposed, which curbs the use of too much raw material and manpower. Moreover, the craftsman's hands do not create fumes to punch holes in the ozone layer, which is a most vital source of energy conservation and protection for us. The only handicap in all this is that you might end up with too many lovely things. But it is such a beautiful thing if you can look after all these things and give them a proper place in your home in order to beautify and harmonize your own life and that of all those who come to see you. Moreover, even if you were to buy some handmade thing that you find you cannot use, you can give it to someone else who will appreciate it and enjoy your gift much more than something mass-produced or made of plastic, because it is so substantial, because it is naturally individual and unique, and so beautiful in itself. Nowadays, there is increasing criticism of modern architecture. In particular, that architects are not keeping in touch with the real needs of people who want to live surrounded by lines that flow and move and have shape, and not feel imprisoned and alienated from the real and natural world by the rigid lines of modern buildings. If you look at the real estate market, it is very obvious that people like to have houses which were built a long time ago, when there was more concern for creating beautiful forms that copied nature. Every inch and feature of traditional properties has been preserved, and even if they are in the most decrepit state, they are highly respected and command the highest prices. For example, it happened that I went with my family to a very famous European city, which has a rich history behind it. There, we were put up in a beautiful hotel, which was very expensive to live in. This hotel, we were proudly told, dated circa 1760. The only trouble was, it had such basic problems that we had to leave within two days. As soon as we opened the door, the handle came off in our hand. We were quite embarrassed, and we thought we would have to pay for a new one. But the gentleman downstairs came up and said, Don't worry, it can be easily fixed back. As if every handle, hinge and nail in the place had fallen out and been fixed a thousand times. The whole place is a museum of antiques without any real purpose, but they are still using it successfully as a very expensive hotel. So after the drama with the door handle, we tried opening the tap in the bathroom. The tap came away in our hand, and the bathroom was filled with water. Perhaps this has happened to every single visitor who ever stayed there. But still they continue with the same style, and their guests keep going back because people are willing to pay a lot of money to live in a place which may be very uncomfortable, or with threadbare furniture or dingy decorations, but where, quite simply, they find more peace and tranquility. No one really wants to live in a museum, but if architects would just take some of the good points that we find in traditional architecture and use them to create modern but harmonious and natural homes, they would not only earn their living,
but would definitely give a better deal to the owners, who in this way could easily enjoy up-to-date comforts, as well as the variety and beauty of a traditional abode. It is a well-known fact that on a ship people get very bored because everything is decorated with the same colour and texture, the curtains are the same all over, and even the food is much the same every day. All these repetitions very quickly bore the unfortunate passengers. Of course, once you are stuck on a ship, it is not possible to do anything about your problems, as there are no solutions. But why should we, who are on the shore, on terra firma, the restful and reliable Mother Earth, put up with the same boredom of living in houses which are mass-produced, in a style that doesn't enable us to relax and enjoy our lives? So on the one hand, we feel that we are free to make our own choices, the choice between baked beans on toast or fish and chips, or maybe the choice between pizza or pasta. Of course, it could also be a choice between different types of biscuits or chocolates. Now we should ask ourselves whether the quality of our lives would go down so very much if we always took the dish of the day and enjoyed the variety of biscuits that happened to be there. But, on the other hand, when it comes to the substantial things which are so important in our lives, like the houses we live in, the clothes we wear, the cities we plan, we will quickly perceive that all these things must have variety. Take somebody who is constantly travelling. He may be in San Jose, California, and then the next day wake up in some place in Europe. When he looks out of the window or walks down the street, he cannot tell whether he is in San Jose or in Europe, because they both look exactly alike. In both of them, he has to make inquiries as to which place he is in. After some time, perhaps, thanks to the labour-saving standardization of the architects and planners, we might end up with all the cities of the world looking exactly alike, and we'll have to keep a diary all the time to remember which, in a whole series of indistinguishable cities, we are visiting. So much for the actual limitations imposed on real choice by modernist architecture. As we have mentioned earlier, another area in which people have been very skillfully fooled by the entrepreneurs is fashion. For example, I saw a lady recently in Helsinki. All her clothes were torn and she had a very funny and embarrassing appearance with so much of her showing through. She had a primitive hairstyle, with half her hair shorn off and the other half totally unkempt. Furthermore, she smelled very bad. I thought that she was too poor to afford a proper dress, and I offered her a good clean dress to wear. I felt that she must be ignorant, and did not know that if you go to see a saint, you should at least be bodily clean. But when I asked her if she would care to have a bath, she refused and said, These days having a bath is out of fashion. The dress that I offered her was, according to her, absolutely out of date, while the dress she was wearing was absolutely ultra-modern. I felt that this was where the law of polarity once again was showing its effect. I thought that this lady must have been trapped into slavishly imitating the fashion with her so-called freedom of choice. She must have dressed up in all kinds of fashionable dresses at different stages of her life. And now she had reached the situation where she felt that all the clothes she had bought were of no use because they had so quickly gone out of fashion, 
and that it was better to wear something which was so worn out that it had become antique and had formed its own torn patterns. But to my amazement, I found out that the clothes that she was wearing was sold in a very special boutique at a very high price, and that they were stonewashed designer clothes made threadbare and torn to order. They were now being sold as something very unique and exclusive. Just like them, this lady from Helsinki was convinced that she was exercising her choice in the freest possible way. But in actual fact, this is like passing from one kind of slavery to another kind of slavery. A case is not rare, and we see so many of these manifestations of creativity all around us. Not so long ago, the really in thing was to dye your hair green and shave your head into curious patterns like an ornamental hedge, for which people had to pay heavily and often borrowed money. But now, if you talk of punks, they say you are out of date. So what is the very latest fashion? It is actually impossible to say, as the entrepreneurs are producing new fashions with such speed. The modern generation is schooled to be able to keep up and to cope with that speed. If they cannot, they are quickly classified as out of date and discarded by the social group in which they live. What appears to be up to date or with it is nothing but the clever invention of the entrepreneurs that you must buy something new every day to keep their machinery going. The whole fashion industry is just a money-making racket. It is a wonderful way of pampering the ego to say that such and such a style has won the first prize in the fashion parade in Milan or Paris or Timbuktu. And you are so enamoured by this new chance of exercising your choice and of throwing out all the expensive clothes you've chosen before as so much out-of-date junk. Once you become addicted to fashion, you do not know how far to go with the entrepreneur who is thus so kindly giving a new dimension to your stupidity and your gullibility. With this kind of compulsion to change, we live on the cusp of superficiality, and our attention is always caught up with deciding what new irrelevance to have, to buy, to own, and to display. Our unnecessary demands on raw materials to feed our choices has meant that we have started consuming excessively and depleting the Mother Earth, creating terrible environmental problems for both the present and the future. To cover your body, you need something substantial and sensible. Of course, variety brings beauty, no doubt, but only if this variety is created by artists and not by entrepreneurs who are on the lookout for nothing but money spinners. This is another horrendous example of what happens to people who become slaves of fashion and give up their natural good sense. I have seen that when the fashion for tight clothes started, women who wore extremely tight-fitting clothes thought themselves very beautiful, though they looked like mosquitoes, or one might say like tuberculosis patients. These uncomfortable dresses made them develop horrible varicose veins later on in life. Of course, in their vanity they never told anyone about it. After that, Another fashion started for clothes which were manufactured with holes already in them, and they grandly called them holy pants. In the damp and windy climate of England, one could see many people walking around proudly with these holy pants on, 
and of course, getting very severe types of problems in later life, such as rheumatism. It is impossible to understand why we consume so much plastic these days. Our forefathers used to use only one brass plate or one silver plate, while nowadays in the West, plastic affluence and polyester clothing have given rise to a balloon-like existence. A balloon has no substance, only air to make it float wherever it wants to go. Those who are busy with the creation and manufacture of plastics are nicely developing and building up their financial image as multi-millionaires. Meanwhile, mindless consumerism is creating mountains and mountains of plastic, so that one does not know how they're going to solve the problem of destroying these man-made mountains, which are not only unsightly, but which might even be spoiling the atmosphere by their very existence. The overproduction of plastics and artificial fibres is, of course, a serious byproduct of compulsive consumerism, which is fueled by the notion of fashion. If you are a follower of fashion, how can you be a free person? You may actually become addicted to reading fashion magazines to find out what is the most up-to-date and modern, as if you were running a race and it was desperately important to find out who was got ahead of you. Our poor children are also constantly bombarded via the television with the ever-increasing number of choices that they have. Now they have come out with dolls with their own birthdays, bears with pedigrees, including their father's name, their grandfather's name, their uncle's name, and their whole dynasty. According to the alluring suggestions of the advertising industry, you are supposed to invite all the relations of these dolls or bears together for dinner, and naturally they have to travel from place to place. If, as a parent, you do not agree to this, the children of these modern times will get after your life to such an extent that in the end you will have to spend even more money organising these parties every month in some part of the city. Here the entrepreneur, through the medium of advertising, is creating totally unrealistic needs and false reality. Furthermore, it is he who enjoys the earnings of your labour. Such children no longer have any relationship with their own parents or grandparents. They do not know very clearly who their own uncles and aunts are, but they do know by heart all the pseudo-relations of these plastic dolls or bears. In the developed countries, People's houses nowadays are full of these things, so that children are more attached to their dolls and bears than to their own parents. The other day I saw at the airport the security people insisting that a little girl's doll had to pass through the X-ray machine, but the child was so attached to the doll that she wanted to get into the machine along with the doll, and when they did not allow her she started to cry loudly and made everybody feel quite upset about the whole thing. How does it come about that children are so attached to their toys when that is not their innate nature? Normally they play with their toys and then when they are fed up with them, they give them up. But so many parents just do not have time for their children because they also are so terribly busy with their fashions and their choices. In this situation, the children transfer their affection to their toys which are all the time with them, and so give them some security and continuity. Manufacturing output, advertising and consumption 
all go on with a kind of mechanical inevitability, but we have to realize that this machinery is not our master. It is we who are the creators of this machinery, and so it is we who can control it. If you think that freedom means freedom to do anything according to your whims and fancies, then I think that the idea of freedom is absolutely naive. Actually, real freedom is freedom from compulsion. But on the contrary, in these developed countries, people are compelled. Compelled to buy things they neither need nor want. Compelled to live with all kinds of junk around them. Compelled in the end to spend their time and money to get rid of it all. Just think of the millions of families who are absolutely surrounded and dominated by these products of modernism and are so desperately anxious to get rid of what they already have and swap it for something new. This is a problem caused by the many choices and challenges confronting them. The expertise of entrepreneurs at launching different varieties of unnecessary products is at its height in America. You can never buy two pieces of the same necktie because every tie has to be different. Every door fastener or car lock is different. Every carpet has to be of a different style. So far, so good. There is a great range of choice. But this choice is illusory, because all this variety is basically made of the same thing. That is, the products that dazzle and tempt us surprisingly are mostly man-made, in the sense that only artificial material is used to create them. Sometimes, if you walk on these lovely synthetic carpets barefoot, you feel as if your feet are burning, and some of the clothes that they create can give you a rash all over your body. Oddly enough, people don't seem to mind. Perhaps it has become the fashion nowadays to have a rash. But the worst is when you are in a moving car and you suddenly find the door lock has some unique quality or variety so that you would not be able to open it should the car catch fire. All this variety just makes us feel more and more confused and alienated in our own world. It is better to be humble and not feel shy about asking how to open the door of any car or a train before you get into it. In all probability, it will have an engine of a peculiar type which has suddenly come into fashion and everything else will be different too. Where there is excessive choice and unnecessary variety, there is no standardization and no one knows what is happening. Some measure of standardization is required for the security and safety of the people. However, standardization can be taken to absurd limits. For example, in India, when they wanted to manufacture hinges, instead of using traditional craft skills, they decided to make them by machine to normalize manufacturing procedures and to standardize hinge sizes, all very expensive, of course. Now it requires a wrestler to open doors with those hinges and two wrestlers to close them again. It is impossible to understand why such stiff hinges were made for the use of ordinary human beings. In India, our traditional hinges are beautiful ones made of brass at a much cheaper price and they open easily. Of course, they do not have precise dimensions. But because doors are now being mass-produced out of artificial materials, there needs to be some limit on natural variation, and, 
in order to obtain precision, the hinges must be made by machine. So against our better intentions, we have to take to these horrible machine-made hinges which can neither keep the doors open nor closed, unless you find someone who can pay a healthy wrestler to act as a helper. So the reactive nature of these ideas, having precision in the wrong place and no standardization in the right place, also comes from the confused minds of entrepreneurs who must be going crazy thinking up new things every day. Thus we end up with a great many people, the manufacturers, the advertisers, and the consumers who are absolutely confused and do not know what is two plus two. The slow demoralization of people and the loss of their capacity for the real enjoyment of things are the absurd consequences of the so-called freedom of choice. We have a huge variety of other unnecessary freedoms also. One of them is to have the choice of what we will be wearing when we get into our coffin also the choice of selecting our own coffins. This looks extremely ridiculous to any wise person, but it is yet another example of the freedom of the entrepreneur to make as much money as he likes, even out of people who are about to die. By far the worst type of freedom we are suffering from in modern times is the freedom to lead an immoral life. You can marry one person, sleep with another, flirt with a third one and create children with a fourth. This completely crazy idea also comes from the notion that you always have to be looking for something new. A woman who is old for one man becomes new for another. One starts changing women as one changes one's clothes. With this foolish idea, one falls into yet another trap. This exhaustion of energy on the endless pursuit of the new even in the most intimate relations, creates horrible problems, emotional, mental, and physical. If promiscuity were a very natural, normal, and good thing, then why is it that people are now suffering from life-destroying diseases which are directly due to this kind of lifestyle? Why is there jealousy? Every day, the very newspapers that support and defend the freedom of permissiveness are full of reports of violence. Women killing their husbands, husbands killing their wives, lovers killing their lovers' lovers. This mutual destruction goes on and on and on. If promiscuity is akin to our nature, then why do we resist it with such violence? What sort of freedom is it to flirt with any man or woman, whether you are married or not, and to develop eyes which are lecherous and adulterous. With time, these eyes cannot even perceive innocence when they see it, and now they are no longer stimulated by adults and have turned their evil gaze on young children. Today, we have an almost unbelievable number of cases of child abuse, sometimes even perpetrated by the parents. This flouting of the well-tried moral conventions of centuries of civilized life is, of course, yet another very degrading low-level aspect of modernism, and with it, human beings have become worse than animals. It is quite obvious that promiscuity leads to unhappiness, disease, and death, and that we have to do something to check its spread. But the problem is that legislation 
and even education can achieve very little. People just have to know where to stop. But this control, this compulsion has to come from within. This means you have to have a spiritual awakening. The light of the Spirit has to come into your attention. A person who is a realized soul doesn't like anything that takes him to extremes. A realized soul is actually a person whose personality is in balance. He's in the center because whenever his attention gets out of balance, it is brought back to the center by the light of his spirit. And such a person has his feet on Mother Earth. Such a person, by his very nature, has to be practical, pragmatic, wise, and detached. Such a person simply cannot form habits and cannot take to something that is stupid, idiotic, and destructive. Such a person will not waste time choosing things. Whatever is available, the person knows how to enjoy it. This choice business becomes particularly horrible and destructive when it enters into the area of marriage. Now, marriages are arranged by the unleashed ego alone, unaided by any restraining or guiding influence traditionally provided by parents or the caring community. Now the choice of marriage partner is based purely on the whim of the ego, lust or greed. In these circumstances, any small difference of opinion can create a problem in a marriage. Families are broken. Children leave home as soon as they reach 18 to find their own house or apartment to live in, or they join a group of squatters and occupy somebody else's house. As things are, children cannot tolerate their parents, and parents cannot tolerate their children because their marriages are unhappy. In the name of developing their individuality and sense of identity, they make their children work very hard. I have seen a little girl of nine years coming every morning on her bicycle to drop the newspaper at our door. One day I asked her who her parents were, and she named one of our neighbours, but she said, I have to earn money for myself. I have to learn how to stand on my own two feet. At such a tender age, she was not yet grown up enough to stand on her own feet. And if such a young child is raped on the way, or mugged and plundered, who is responsible for that? And will that help her to stand on her own two feet? Marriage exists for creating progeny in a secure and balanced environment, and to look after the children so that they become confident and decent adults. If you want to be a bride all your life, that is, on a perpetual honeymoon, it is better not to marry at all, but to go to some place where you can earn some living out of your body and everyone knows what you are. Marriage is meant for women and men who want to lead a sane and sensible life, providing a harmonious environment for their progeny. Romance and the roving eye must end when the house becomes the home. There are so many things which can spoil married relationships, but who or what has killed romance in marriage? Many things, one more superficial than the next, can be blamed. If I tell you of one I heard recently, you'll be amazed. The hairdressers. I know of several men who left their fiancés because they did not like their new hairstyle. Marriage imposes great responsibilities and is meant only for people who have maturity and a clean personality. Otherwise, 
as the statistics for child abuse and juvenile delinquencies show, it is not safe to place children in the hands of irresponsible, cheap or aggressive parents. Such people do not realise that to be a parent is a privilege that carries its own responsibilities, and they should have no automatic freedom to produce children if they do not have any love for them. As things are, this choice business when it comes to marriage can lead to the destruction and even the murder of many children who either die helplessly or fall into self-destructive habits because the parents do not want them and consequently have no idea how to look after them. There should only be one clear choice for them, whether to have their own egotistical romantic life or to accept their responsibilities, which set a proper limit on their so-called freedom, have children and look after them. The problem is made worse because the idea that you have a right to go on choosing your partner is continued even after you have chosen to get married. The law is supportive of divorce and anybody who does not want to go on with his or her marriage can have a separation or divorce without any problem. But even when they choose to stay married, couples in developed countries tend largely not to stay faithful to each other. On the contrary, any man or woman who stays faithful to their wife or husband is regarded as out of date. You have to be sexy, attractive to another man or woman, not to your own partner, of course, but to others. Unless you are that, you are not considered suitable for this modern world. This idea of a sort of official attractiveness is also very new and has come yet again from those evil geniuses, the entrepreneurs. It is they who create the sensational image of the woman who is attractive or of the man who is good-looking. But why should every woman and man have to strive to be attractive like prostitutes? What is the need of wasting your energy trying to conform to the height, the waistline, the hips and the legs prescribed by those official image-makers, the entrepreneurs? Have we not got our own brains to think about it and to make a genuine choice? If we have freedom and intelligence, why shouldn't we think that whatever body God has given us is more than sufficient for our needs? And besides, why should we hanker for people to be running after us for our bodies? Of course, for many, the idea that we might actually not enjoy being pursued by every Tom, Dick and Harry seems to be very out of date, because strangely, they enjoy this kind of joyless pursuit. The notion that you should have unlimited choice has most clearly gone too far in the rapid increase in the availability of pornography. I have seen books which even exploit children to satisfy the perverse sexuality of some people. Although I had no courage to read them, I understand that these books are very popular and are making a lot of money for the publisher and the writer. When innocence itself is used to satisfy the basest and most selfish passions, then that society has clearly lost all contact with the traditional values which allow any society or culture to survive. There has to be respect for marriage and for the innocence of children. Everyone should become alert and aware of the vital importance of finding out what the purpose of marriage is, which is to protect the innocence of little children, 
and prevent them from being overpowered and exploited. But in modern societies, parents have become no more than fierce, unreasoning bullies who shirk their real responsibilities of providing love and security, or else they are like cabbages that children can eat with a chili sauce of cruel treatment. It is precisely the failure to understand the vital importance of stable marriages that has destroyed the so-called advanced societies in which parents cannot give guidance through love to their children because they are too busy running after artificial images created by the entrepreneurs. Children at a very young age are frustrated in their desire for love and affection and are driven to seek the company of other children. And in their desperate desire for love, they enter the mess of immorality at a very young age. The media, particularly television, feed their brains with all kinds of absurd ideas about the importance of sex. In a society like India, where the media is not allowed to focus upon sex for children, there is no need to give sex education to children in schools. It is not done in India so far, and will not be done, I hope, because it is not necessary. Why expose the innocence of children to these frightening ideas? Where a child has been deliberately saved from being ruined by exposure to sex and violence on TV, it is a terrible misuse of power by educators to implant something so dangerous at such a young age. At the tender age of seven or eight, it is too soon to end these beautiful years of innocence. It is also cruel. Children are not naturally equipped to cope with the so-called facts of life so aggressively thrust into their consciousness in those beautiful days of playful, joyful, innocent existence. In this way, modernism has created a whole generation of human beings who have ruined their own lives, ruined the lives of their children and of their parents. All those sources which traditionally provide the nourishment of love and peace have been completely ruined. Nowadays, a grandmother is too busy to look after her grandchildren because she has to go to the hairdresser. She feels she must look young or she'll be considered over the hill, as good as a dead person. Nobody will allow you to go along nicely without putting your head into the hands of hairdressers. I, myself, never go to a hairdresser. So many people have thought me to be a rustic woman from some sort of unsophisticated family. But when I now see those who used to think like that, at the same age as I am now, they have all become nearly bald or are absolutely grey with wrinkled faces. They have slowly lost their natural smile, their sweetness, their soft expressions. This is the so-called gift of all those beauticians. There is yet another choice for you, to get just your skin or your whole face lifted. I have seen in one country a president's wife who wore a permanent grin on her face. Try as I might, it was impossible for me to understand how this woman could have a grin on her face all the time, regardless of whether she laughed or cried. Later on, I discovered that she had been through a very severe course of facelifting treatment in Switzerland and had achieved this expression permanently. A mature person understands that as age advances, 
you have no choice but to become old. But at the same time, you may remain graceful, dignified, and serene. Yet things have become so materialistic in modern society that even when you have one foot in the grave, you have to be sure that you look all right and are playing into the hands of the entrepreneurs. Even your final gesture at that time is going to be watched by all the people to make sure that you have kept the latest fashion and stayed up to date. The great principle in the consumer society in which all your choices are carefully multiplied so as to drain you of your money, is that you should spend all your precious energy seeing and being seen. The code of behaviour is dictated before you even begin to choose. When we first came to London, we had no appropriate glasses or tumblers for wine or spirits. We were told quite clearly that nobody would come to our house unless we offered them a drink. Despite my uneasiness and my natural disgust of wine and alcohol, I realised I had to do it. So I requested my husband to undertake the responsibility for this aspect, as I would not be able to do justice to such a demanding task. He calls me an idealist, and that I am not practical. First he had to get a dictionary to read up on all the details about wine and alcohol. Then we realised that there were books and books written about alcohol and how drinks are to be served and what tumblers and glasses should be used. It was a regular course of study. We got hold of a friend and took him with us to buy the minimum number of glasses needed to entertain about twelve people. You'd be amazed. It was in 1974 in England and we had to pay more than £900 to buy that one set for twelve people because it had to be very elegant and of a special style. I was amazed that there were so many expensive kinds of glasses needed for different kinds of wines and spirits, while in India we can do with just one glass or silver tumbler for each guest for soft drinks. Moreover, for people who have had a few drinks and who cannot then see anything— what is the need of having such elegant, artistically made crystal glasses? It was a nuisance to clean them, put them in the right order, and to remember which was to be used for what. In India, as we have servants, my husband had never known how to carry even a tray, but, as I would not agree to do that, he had to carry tray after tray upstairs where our guests were sitting and drinking. Some of the guests, who were to come to our house, lost their way, and they arrived for lunch at four o'clock. After that, of course, we had to serve them. The more we poured, the more they drank, always from the right glass, of course, and after an hour they were no longer in their right senses. They said the same things over and over again, but nobody was listening anyway. I must admit that I come from a family which was always against drinking alcohol but I did not realise how naive and unprepared I was to play the role of the kind of housewife I had to be in London at that time. I did not know even the colours of any one of these drinks. How was I to serve them? So I asked my husband to do his religious duty. In order to assist him in this great task, he got hold of two Chinese waiters, who, as it turned out, came to us as a great blessing they knew a lot about different types of alcohol and the manner in which they should be served. 
We had to pay them quite a lot for their knowledge and expertise. They looked at our stock of wines and spirits and found this to be inadequate for the number of guests who were coming for lunch. They also made a huge list of other requirements. My husband had to rush to the local market to purchase some bottles of Shivers Regal whiskey, as well as some wines. The other requirements indicated by the Chinese waiters were also purchased. We now felt confident that we were well prepared. However, when the guests arrived and the drinks were served, we suddenly faced a problem which, due to our ignorance of drinking requirements, we had not anticipated. One of them had asked for an alcoholic drink with Worcestershire sauce. I had heard of a character in the novels of P.G. Woodhouse who had the same name phonetically, Worcester. But not a sauce. In any case, for our Indian food, we do not need Worcester sauce, and we had none in the house. Even our experienced Chinese waiters had not included this item in their list. What could we do? My husband apologised to the guest concerned, but he was not amused. Eventually, he accepted another drink, rather reluctantly, and as time passed, he became quite genial. It is so difficult for me to understand why so many people who are at the helm of affairs and who have to do so much responsible work for their country have this horrible addiction. It has become the one and only culture of the Western countries, and unless you offer your guests this intoxicant, you cannot talk or have any rapport with them at all. The trouble is, once the alcohol is there, maybe all that rapport can become so much disconnected nonsense, even in diplomatic circles. I feel that the spies and the traitors of every country must be cleverly using this choice of alcoholic drinks as a method of enticing people, dulling their senses, and getting secrets out of them. Even for simple bribery and corruption, alcohol is a very good vehicle. If you know a person in charge likes a particular type of spirit or wine, it's very easy to win him over. Once we tried this experiment with a station master of our local railway station. He was a multi-purpose employee who served at the ticket window as well. Whenever I went to buy a ticket, he would behave rudely on one pretext or another. If I did not have the exact change, he would show his annoyance by gesture or words. Perhaps he could not bear the sight of a traditionally dressed Indian lady. We did not know how to make him kinder or to win him over. My husband suggested that as we would not need the leftover bottles of Shivers Regal, we might send a couple of them to the station master as a gift on the occasion of some celebration at our residence. The bottles were duly delivered by our domestic aide to the station master. He asked, Was this some religious festival of yours? Yes, it was, replied our man. The station master was delighted. He accepted the bottles of whiskey with great pleasure and conveyed his profuse thanks to us. Next day, when I went to the station as usual, I was treated with very special courtesy and respect, as if I was the local baroness. I was amazed at this total transformation. We continued to live in that place for four years, and we thereafter had no problems at all. The extra bottles which my husband bought had very good use after all. The key idea in modern times is that every day one must have something new. There should be a change every day, perhaps even down to your wife or your children, 
because a modern person becomes bored very easily. Perhaps he has to make up his mind so often between so many different choices that his brain gets exhausted, and ultimately, when he gets what he thought he wanted, he finds that he is bored with that as well. This secret is well known to the entrepreneur. He first tempts your attention with a vast array of choices, and then he bores you stiff and creates more and more things for you to choose from, because that is how he can keep his machines satisfied. And these require feeding every day. He knows how to pamper your ego, and to suggest that you have a choice to do something or to accept something. For example, if you want to buy or sell some property in England, a house which is not decorated and is not yet attended to, and has been left to its own fate, fetches much more money than a house which has been done up and is well decorated. The point is that the house which has not been done up is the one which satisfies the ego of the purchaser, who would like to have the house done according to his own choice. So personal choice becomes the criterion for deciding what is the best for you. But this choice is based on the play of ego, and if some entrepreneur is clever enough to see how he can fool the buyers by advertising in the media or through window displays, he can easily make a vast sum of money in a very short time. Now, if he, the entrepreneur, also happens to be a politician, then such a man can become an important person at the helm of affairs simply because he has a sharp mind and knows everything you need to know to be successful. Meanwhile, the consumer, of course, thinks that he has a great freedom of choice. He thinks, oh, I can choose this or that. What a lord I am that I have the right to choose. But gradually he gets lost in the choices that he has, and is very confused because he's living superficially on the cusp of all these choices. He cannot go deep into his being to understand what he actually wants. Just by saying the magic words, I like it, he feels that he has an identity and a personality by which he can assert his own will and affirm his own self in the world. When we play into the hands of the entrepreneurs, we waste all our labour and energy in consumerism. We start desecrating Mother Earth and creating environmental problems. Unfortunately, human beings, however highly we might think of ourselves, cannot create matter, nor can we create life out of matter. All we can do is to create dead things from dead material. Thus, we exhaust Mother Earth, in our frantic and endless rush to create new fashions, new things and new egos. We should buy no more than we need. Even for daily use we should buy something substantial, sensible and artistic. In their vanity, some ladies prefer to buy shoes with pointed stiletto heels that make them look six inches taller. They do not even pause to think that this kind of showing-off temperament of theirs will invariably lead to sprained ankles, to sciatica, or to more serious troubles with their spinal column. One day they may not be able to walk, and may have to make their choices from their beds. There is not a lot of sense in believing that you are free to do what you like, and to choose what you like, when all you are doing is playing into the hands of unscrupulous entrepreneurs and spoiling yourself. 
In modern times, there is another way the entrepreneurs try to create problems for consumers. In Western countries, there are very few people who can afford to own things made of gold or silver, but strangely enough, in the developing countries, every household will have something made of silver or gold. The reason, I have found, is that everything is seen in terms of its cash value in Western countries, so that everything you buy has to be resaleable. If you want to buy a silver spoon, then it has to be hallmarked. If it is not hallmarked, then it cannot be resold. So the spoon is bought to use and later to resell. It is never thought that this spoon could go to my children or to my grandchildren. The hallmark is very important, and you cannot have silver of any other variety. For example, you could have cheaper silver if you mix it with something else, but such a thing would not sell. On the contrary, as far as gold is concerned, it is the lowest gradation of nine carats which is used in all the Western countries. This gold absolutely amounts to very little actual gold in the ornaments, but you can resell it because it is hallmarked, while in the developing countries, especially China and India, people use 22 or 24 carat gold, so that there is a substantial amount of pure gold in their jewellery. When they fall on hard times, if the jewellery cannot be sold for its workmanship, at least there is gold that they can sell or pawn and redeem later. So it is a paradox that when you buy something, you should know what the substantial value of that particular item is. If it is silver, then you need to know the mixture and the proportion of pure silver in it will indicate the real value. So whatever one buys, it has to be substantial, and when it is to be sold, it is the material substance in it that should be seen. But because of these paradoxical markings, one does not know whether to buy these things or not. According to traditional wisdom, silver is very important for a good heart, as it keeps the heart in good shape, and gold is important because it does not tarnish. If a little gold is used for daily wear as jewellery, it helps you to achieve some good results in a very subtle manner. So in traditional cultures, which have largely escaped the blight of modernism and consumerism, there is a knowledge and a respect for the subtle properties of material substances. It is a paradox that in the so-called materialistic societies, there is no respect for matter. If you go into any modern house in the West, you will find numerous things, some made of plastic. If you sit on a sofa, it could be among many made of plastic. If you eat at a table, it may be made of plastic. If you touch the window frames, they are made of plastic. Things which are made of plastic have a curious capacity to penetrate any natural material such as cloth, glass or any other God-made material that is used together with plastic, so much so that the natural material feels debased and loses its own particular energy. Because it is cheap, you can go on buying plastic after plastic, in any household, people have many disposable things made of plastic, as well as durable things, which are also made of mixtures of plastic. Even the dinner plates are made of plastic. Why don't they prefer to buy one nice plate made of brass, something handmade, 
instead of a vast choice of plastic plates. Plastic is machine-made from the waste matter of the earth, which has therefore got all the ingredients for our destruction within. If you have something made by hand, and you use it without making a big fuss about it, you can enjoy it for itself as well as for the usefulness that it may have. Even if you have only a few well-made and beautiful plates, you feel so satisfied that you don't want to buy any others and waste your time window-shopping all the time. Then you are truly a free person. But if you follow fashion, you'll be busy all day wasting your time. You'll go to someone's house and say, Oh, he has got such and such a thing, it's very good. You'll go out and buy the same thing because this is the choice you have made. But who is playing games with whom? Who is calling the shots? The entrepreneurs, of course, and they are spoiling you and your children. Their alluring advertisements are blasted out of the television at peak viewing hours for children's programs. This is a nice thing that has just come out. Dolls with birthdays, bears with pedigrees. But all this is simply to keep the machinery working. By exercising our right to make choices and spend our money on what takes our fancy, we are simply playing into the hands of the exploiter, the entrepreneur. Please remember that he knows you better than you know yourself. One has to remember that the machinery is meant to serve us and that we are not meant to serve the machinery. It is not our genuine needs that are responsible for the overproduction of consumer goods by this machinery, but it is we who suffer from the overproduction of such goods because it creates the depletion of the earth's resources and the constant waste of money which is the product of our labours and which we spend so compulsively on things we do not want and which are usually not good for us. This idea that freedom is just the ability to make pseudo and irrelevant choices is believed only by those people who are still naive and who are not smart enough to see the underlying forces that bring forth everyday passions and compulsions which masquerade as freedom. Of course, one has to be free to act, to express one's freedom, but this should never be unbridled. You should know what to do and where to stop. If you have a car which has an accelerator but no brakes, then what will be the situation of the driver? In the same way, if you have freedom, then you must know also that you have freedom to curb this whimsical freedom at a point. Some people who still live under a communist regime may be curbed, but that, of course, is a compulsory curbing. When they are let loose, you see that their desires are still unfulfilled, and emerge even more powerfully than the desires of people in a free country. So this curbing has to come from within, and for that, one has to have spiritual awakening. That is, the wisdom of the Spirit must come into your attention. If you ask a Gnostic or a Sajogi, what are you fond of? Are you fond of hot things? You will say, to begin with, I do not like or dislike anything, except I dislike anything that is extreme. I just enjoy whatever is there. Who is going to waste time choosing things, just enjoy whatever is available? But, of course, 
if it is very hot or very sour or very cold, then he will eat only a little because it has gone to an extreme. Unfortunately, this choice business is becoming more and more extreme, even as we have seen when it comes to marriages. However, this urge to multiply the choices which the ego can make is curbed by the spirit, because when it comes to your attention, the spirit enables you to understand the vital aesthetic dimension of your experience. So instead of allowing the ego to manifest greed for material objects, the spirit starts enjoying the divine beauty of matter. The self-realized soul knows that matter provides a most wonderful way of expressing love when you want to give some material thing to someone else. So a joyful thought is inspired within you when you see something beautiful, that this would be nice for such and such a person that you love. For example, once a gentleman went with a sage yogi to a shop and he liked something very much, a piece of art, but he could not purchase it because at that time he had no money with him. So his friend, who was also a sage yogi, went later on and purchased that particular work of art, kept it for some time, and on his friend's birthday, he sent it to him. This concern and this deep expression of love enchanted the other person, and he was doubly happy to see how a beautiful thought was attached to that work of art. So it is the attention in the divine discretion of the spirit, on one hand, that curbs your greed, your selfishness, your acquisitive urge, and your dissatisfied mind. On the other hand, the knowledge of what you can do to make someone really happy with some material thing that is available for purchase suddenly dawns upon you. It enables you to understand the true value of matter and to exercise your freedom of choice in order to express your love and to enhance the quality of someone else's life.